Well, today we are continuing our series in the letter to the Romans. You know, we, we've been in this for a while, and boy, all of a sudden the Sundays have kind of added up. We haven't been in it. There was Mother's Day, and uh, we had Friend Day last week, a couple other Sundays in there. So it's actually been, I think, three or four weeks since we were in Romans. But we're back now and uh, looking at some of the deepest chapters in all the Bible. As we turn to Romans chapter 9 to 11, these chapters we'll be covering over the next couple of weeks, uh, we are coming to chapters that have some of the, the deepest questions, uh, have some of the strongest theological camps that disagree with each other, and uh, are challenging to understand. To kind of prepare for that, uh, I, am gonna, I want to read a little bit uh, from a book called Erasing Hell. Now, Romans chapter 9 is not about hell, but uh, in this book, he has a, a chapter on Romans 9. And the way he studies it, the way he kind of shapes it and looks at these, I think it just kind of helps soften and open the mind to the kinds of questions we need to be asking and what we're looking at when we come to chapters like this. I mean, Romans 1 through 8, uh, we're, we're just, I mean, we were really in one vein and we are taking a sharp right turn now as we go to chapter 9. So let me read this. Um, I'm going to be reading for a while here. I don't, I don't think I've ever read this long in a sermon. I've really practiced at reading. I only put myself to sleep one time practicing. Uh, so hopefully I'm not going to lose you in this. The only thing we may learn is that I should not read this long in a sermon. But uh, pretty good stuff here. See if you can hold on to it and catch it. Romans, or this is uh, What If God? Uh, this is by Francis Chan. It says, Now I want to approach the passage of Scripture that has caused me more confusion than any other Romans 9. The text itself is not confusing. Please read it for yourself. It's fairly simple to understand. What makes it confusing is the newness of it. That's a strange thing to say about something that was written almost 2,000 years ago. But it's a passage that isn't preached often. So when believers come across it, many find themselves confused. We find ourselves asking, is this saying what I think it's saying? If this is true about God, why hasn't anybody told me this before? Is it because we're embarrassed? Maybe we don't want to admit that we believe in a God who is so free, He can do whatever He wants. In this chapter, Paul asks a necessary question. What if? And then he quotes from Romans 9, verse 22 to 23. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy. These vessels He's talking about are human beings, you and me. So what if He's done that for vessels of mercy which He has prepared beforehand for glory? What if? What if God decided to do this? What if God, as a sovereign creator of the universe, decided to create vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And what if he did so in order to show his wrath and make known his power? And what if that's his way of showing those he saves just how great his glory and mercy is? What would you do if he chose to do this? Refuse to believe in him? Refuse to be a vessel of mercy? Does that make any sense? Would you refuse to follow him? Really? Is that wise? What if is a probing question that forces us to face our inflated view of our own logic. It's another way of asking just how high is my view of God. For much of this book, we've been discussing some unpopular topics, judgment, 
wrath, and of course hell. If you're like me, there's a part of you that does not want to believe these things. But as we discussed in chapter 1, the more important question is not whether or not you want to, but could you believe these things if in fact God says they're true? This seems to be the very thing that God is getting at in Romans 9, 22 to 23. Notice Paul does not explicitly say that God destroys sinners for the purpose of showing the world just how powerful he is. Rather, Paul simply raises it as a legitimate possibility. In other words, God may want to display his wrath and power by punishing sinners, or he may have some other purpose in mind. Either way, we must come to a place where we can let God be God. We need to surrender our perceived right to determine what is just and humbly recognize that God alone gets to decide how he's going to deal with people. Because he's the potter and we're the clay. This, in fact, is the analogy that Paul gives earlier in Romans 9. Paul begins by saying, God will have mercy on whomever he wills and he will harden whomever he chooses. These are some tough statements to swallow, and Paul knows it. That's why he goes on to raise the question every reader of Romans 9 raises, well, why does God still find fault? For who can resist His will? Good question. If God gives mercy to whomever He wants, then why does He still find fault? Or put the question another way, if we all need mercy and God grants it to some and not to others, then who is responsible, us or God? But look at Paul's answer to this question. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable? <laughs> Did Paul really just say that? Does the potter have the right to do whatever he wants with the clay? I often hear people say, I, would, I could never love a God who would, who would what? Who would disagree with you? Do things you would never do? Who would allow bad things to happen to people? Who would be more concerned with his own glory than your feelings? Who would send people to hell? But this makes about as much sense as the clay looking up at the potter and saying, I really think you messed me up here. Let me show you a better way to mold me. Picture the absurdity, yet we do it all the time. In fact, I do it all the time. It has taken me 43 years to finally confess that I've been embarrassed by some of God's actions. In my arrogance, I believed I could make Him more attractive or more palatable if I covered up some of His actions. So I neglected speaking on certain passages or I would rush through certain statements God made in order to get to the ones I was comfortable with, the ones I knew others would like. Who do I think I am? The truth is God is perfect and right in all that He does. I am a fool for thinking otherwise. He does not need nor want me to cover for Him. There's nothing to be covered. Everything about Him and all He does is perfect. Yet sometimes from our human perspective, it's tough to see exactly how God is perfect and just and good. That's why it says in Isaiah 55, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. My thoughts are not your thoughts. 
It means we think differently. He hasn't asked us to figure out why he does the things he does. We can't. We're not capable. Our thinking is inferior to his. Let's not think that spending a bit of time meditating on the mysteries of the universe places us on a level that allows us to call God into question. Our God is not a person who is slightly more intelligent. His thoughts are infinitely higher than ours. Knowing that gap is so large, shouldn't we put our energy towards submitting rather than overanalyzing? And sending people to hell isn't the only thing God does that is challenging to figure out. The Bible is bursting with divine acts that don't make a lot of sense to us. Think about it. Early on in the Bible, we read that people have become so evil that God regrets making them. So what does he do? He decides to save some animals and eight of his people. And then he kills the rest. But he doesn't just kill them. He drowns them with a massive flood. A flood? He drowns everyone? If I were God, I wouldn't have done that. Years later, God commands the Israelites to slaughter all the inhabitants of Canaan. Men, women, and children. Every single one. Even though God is merciful, He tells them, Take no prisoners, slaughter them all. If I were God... I would not have done that. The fact is, Scripture is filled with divine actions that don't fit our human standards of logic or morality. But they don't need to. Because we are clay and He is the potter. We need to stop trying to domesticate God or confine Him, confine him to tidy categories and compartments that reflect our human sentiments rather than His inexplicable ways. We serve a God whose ways are incomprehensible whose thoughts are not like our thoughts. Ultimately, thoughts of God should lead to joy because those same thoughts design the cross. Would you have thought to rescue sinful people from their sins by sending your own son to take on human flesh? Would you have thought to enter creation through the womb of a young Jewish woman and be born in a feeding trough? Would you have thought to allow your created beings, the clay, to torture your son, lacerate his flesh with whips, and then drive nails through his hands and feet. I'm almost sure I would not have done that if I was God. Aren't you glad I'm not God? It's incredibly arrogant to pick and choose which incomprehensible truths we embrace. No one wants to ditch God's plan of redemption, even though it doesn't completely make sense to us. Neither should we erase God's revealed plan of punishment because it doesn't sit well with us. As soon as we do this, we are putting God's actions in submission to our own reasoning, which is a ridiculous thing for clay to do. Now, I read all that, hopefully got us thinking a little bit to kind of bring us to just one simple question. Does God get to be God? In this setting right here, right now, that would seem to have a very quick, easy, automatic answer. But if you really think about where you've been in life and how you have questioned and challenged God, which I'm sure we all have. In that light, let me ask you again, does God get to be God? Or does he have to submit to what's comfortable to you? Does he have to submit to what you understand, what, what you can get your mind around? 
Does he have to submit to what you're comfortable explaining to others? If your answer is yes to any of those things, I would suggest you don't really have a God, do you? But if you do let God be God and you realize His immensity and His incomprehensibleness, then clearly at times and places that God is going to move and work and be what you cannot fully grasp, which means there is a high probability you will be uncomfortable with Him at some point. Today we are moving into a a deep study. Romans chapters 9 through 11. And in that we are going to see the the majesty of God. The greatness of God. the, The sovereignty of God. As His plan for man unfolds. Now when I say God's plan for man. Let me be clear. God's plan for man is all about God. You reach your zenith, you reach your peak when your life is all, not a lot, not even mostly. When your life is all about Him, you're reaching your high point. Paradox, when your life is about you, when your life is serving you, you reach your low point. So God is all about God. That's what His plan is. And as we move into this, we have just left Romans 8, which offered us some pretty tempting news. When you make your life all about God, He promises, remember Romans 8, 28? He promises that He is going to use every event, every circumstance, what you like and enjoy, what you don't like and don't enjoy, what you understand, what you don't understand. He's going to use every bit of that to bring out a good purpose, a good plan in your life. Now, I don't know about you, but I've seen some plans where the wheels came off, haven't you? Did you see some good plans that didn't just quite happen? And so we hear God announcing, I've got a great plan for you. Yeah, but God, can anything keep that plan from happening? And boy, we come to the end of Romans chapter 8, verse 38 and 39. Some of the most glorious verses in all the Bible that that promise us nothing, absolutely nothing can separate us from God's love. And it is that love that drives the plan. Well, man, praise the Lord. What good news. God's got a plan for me. God's got a purpose for me. Nothing's going to mess that up. Nothing's going to undo that. Whew, that's good. And then a question comes from the back of the room. Well, what about the Jews? What, what, what about the Jews? I'm sure that's been, that question's been bothering you all week, hasn't it? Yeah, that's kind of the question that we're raising as we come into Romans chapter 9. We've just heard this great plan. What's the Old Testament about? In the entirety of the Old Testament about God's plan for the Jews? But, but where's that plan right now? I mean, think about it today, folks, in 2012. We think of Judaism or or Judaism and Christianity. That's two very distinct religions, isn't it? We we think of them as two separate things. Now, we know they're cousins back there. We know we have a a common starting point. We know there's a a portion of the Bible that that we share. But they're really two very distinct religions. But, you know, it didn't start that way. Man, when those early Messiah followers, Peter, Paul, and Mary, not the 60s group, actual original Messiah followers, when they started following Jesus, they did not think for a second that they were leaving Judaism. 
They did not think for a second that, okay, now we're going to go over here and we're going to start this, this new thing. No, they were Jews. Jesus was a Jew. He was the Jewish Messiah. He was the, the fulfillment of every Jew. Jewish promise. Man, as they began to follow Jesus, they were, they were coming into and celebrating the fullness of Judaism. But as time is starting to unfold, not, not 2,012 years, but even by the time Paul writes the letter to the Jews, I mean to the Romans. We're, we're talking 30, 40 years after Jesus ascended into heaven. Now we're starting to see, boy, there's a, there's a lot less Jews following it's, it's less and less Jews, more and more Gentiles. And, and it's less and less about Israel, and it's more and more about the church. So we hear that God's got a plan, and nothing messes up the plan, but, 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 but wait a minute, what about the Jews? You, you had a plan for them, and it looks like that plan's kind of kaput. It's not even there anymore. What, what happened and that's kind of the big question that, that Paul's going to be answering in 9, 10, and 11. In chapter 9, we're going to see him answering that question by looking at the sovereign choice of God, the sovereign work of God. In chapter 10 next week, we'll look at the justice of God. And then in chapter 11, the faithfulness of God. Deep chapters that are going to take us to a soaring height of seeing the greatness of God. So let's see how Paul takes this on. If you don't have your Bible already open, turn with me to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. We're going to be in here a good bit, so you may want to get a Bible uh, there in the chair in front of you if you don't have one or have somebody hand it to you. Turn to Romans chapter 9, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. It says, In the presence of Christ... I speak with utter truthfulness. I do not lie, and my conscience and the Holy Spirit confirm that what I am saying is true. My heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief for my people, my Jewish brothers and sisters. I would be willing to be forever cursed, cut off from Christ, if that would save them. They're the people of Israel, chosen to be God's special children. God revealed His glory to them. He made covenants with them and gave His law to them. They have the privilege of worshiping Him and receiving His wonderful promises. Their ancestors were great people of God, and Christ Himself was a Jew as far as His human nature is concerned. And He is God who rules over everything and is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. Now the focus of my, my message this morning is not witnessing. But boy, I tell you what, if you're a genuine follower of Christ, if you have genuinely received His gift, it is a gift, right? Not something you deserve, not something you, were, you earned and were paid back for your efforts. If you've received that gift of salvation, boy, when I read these verses, I think, man, do I have a burden for people who do not have the gift like Paul does. Man, what a burden here. Or am I, or am I just satisfied that I'm good, I'm covered, I got mine. Hope, hope it works out for you. Boy, I think this passage really challenges us to have a burden for the lost. And, and as you read through the, the, the letters that Paul wrote, you see a burden for all lost people. But, but boy, this one, Romans, wow, that's a burden, isn't it? I mean, did you hear what he said? He actually said, if, if I could go to hell, if my going to hell would save my Jewish brothers and sisters, I would do it. You have been thinking about that phrase all week long. I'm not even sure Paul's appropriate in making a statement like that. I, I, I'm not sure we're supposed to put others above Christ. That's almost what it sounds like to me. But do you hear the irony, irony in what he's saying? 
If I could go to hell? Somebody did go to hell, didn't they? Somebody did die and go to hell so that you and I would not have to, so that the Jews would not have to. That's Jesus, their Messiah. And they rejected him. And and, and at the same moment that Paul is feeling this incredible burden to see them saved, at the same moment there's an incredible frustration. He's thinking, guys, how, how in the world did we miss this? We've been given every head start under the sun. Man, we're We're Israel. We're, we're the elect. We were picked. We were chosen. And, and not just chosen for something random. We were chosen to be adopted by God. We're His children. And as His children, we've been given the law. We've been given the covenants. We've been given temple worship. We, we were given the Messiah. That's our hope. That's our promise. Man, we Jews, we have been given everything to get a head start on knowing God through His Messiah, Jesus. And we missed it. And what's going on at the same time? The Gentiles, the unelect. I mean, that's another thing I've been thinking about. And I really didn't follow this train of thought very far. But I find it interesting because we kind of get all nervous about the concept of elect and unelect. But here's the elect and they're missing something. And then you've got the unelect and they're getting it. They're getting the Messiah, though they were not picked or chosen. And so we have this question as it's growing, this, this following of Christ is growing. I mean, look at us in here today. You realize this is not a room of Jews. You understand that, don't you? We are called Gentiles. We are a room filled with Gentiles following a Jewish Messiah. So what happened to God's plan? Let's look and see how Paul answers that. Look at verse 6. Well then, has God failed to fulfill His promise to the Jews? No, for not everyone born into a Jewish family is truly a Jew. Just the fact that they are descendants of Abraham doesn't make them true, truly Abraham's children. For the scriptures say, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. Though Abraham had other children too. This means that Abraham's physical descendants are not necessarily children of God. It is the children of the promise who are considered to be Abraham's children. For God had promised, next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. This son was our ancestor Isaac. When he grew up, he married Rebekah, who gave birth to twins. But before they were born, before they had done anything good or bad, she received a message from God. This message proves, listen to this phrase, this message proves that God chooses according to his own plan, not according to our good or bad works. She was told the descendant, the descendants of your older son will serve the descendants of your younger son. In the words of the scriptures, I've loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Now, what, what, what happened to the Jews? Paul starts by answering this question, basically saying, listen, it, in God's plan, it began with a sovereign choice. Now, the moment you use the word sovereign, the question's answered. When God begins something sovereignly, it's going to finish. It's going to be completed. Sovereignty, the very word means this is full power. This is full authority. Nothing can mess it up. Nothing can undo it. So when God sovereignly chose Israel, when God sovereignly began a plan with Israel, it's going to be seen through to the end. Now Paul says, you know, I'm taking it uh, that, that you're confused because not every Jew is following Jesus. You're thinking that because not the entire nation is going after Jesus, God's plan must be messed up here. But, but has it ever been about all? 
And, and then he kind of walks them through. Hey, let's just talk about history here for a moment. Let, let's just kind of think through uh, this. We all, now again, we're pretending for a moment we're all a room of Jews. We all call ourselves descendants of who? Abraham. That's how they refer to him. I'm a descendant of Abraham. And Paul says, okay, that's how we know each other. But are all descendants of Abraham recipients of the promise? Well, no, no, I, no, I, guess, I, I guess we're not. See, they would all know that. Yeah, Abraham had a son, Ishmael, through the handmaiden Hagar. But no, the promise didn't come through Ishmael. He's not a part of this. After Sarah died, Abraham remarried and, and actually had a number of more sons. I think six more sons through another wife. But no, no, none of those sons. No, it's just one son. The son he had with Sarah, uh, with Sarah Isaac. So it's not all descendants. It's descendants through Isaac. But even as we start moving down the chain, we, we, Isaac has two boys, and not just two boys, two boys at the same time. They're twins. And yet before they're even born, God comes to them and says, I've picked, I've elected, I've chosen one. He chose the younger one. He picked Jacob. Jacob would be the, the conduit by which the promise would come through. Esau would not. And boy, we come to a difficult passage here, don't we? That's a tough verse. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Now, we can take some of the jagged edge off of that a little bit, okay? As a matter of fact, we talked about this on, on Easter Sunday. Remember when Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you have to hate your parents? Now, wait a minute. God, the Bible doesn't want us to hate our parents. We're not supposed to hate anybody. We're supposed to love enemies. Why would we hate people we're supposed to love? Well, when you study, you understand that that word hate, just like it is in the English language, it can be used to express intense emotional disliking of somebody. But unlike the English language, the word hate can also be used to do nothing more than express priority. Having nothing at all to do with an emotion. Having nothing at all to do with a disliking, but just a priority. The idea being that, that priority number one is so great... And, and priority number two is so far back, it almost looks like hate. That's kind of the logical thinking behind this word. And so what God is saying here is not, you know that Esau fellow? I hate that guy's guts. I don't like the way he dresses. He smells bad. He was mean to a friend of mine. I hate that Esau. Not at all. Completely misinterpreting the word, if that's how you're standing, understanding it. What he is saying, what God is saying is, in my sovereign choice, I have prioritized Jacob over Esau. Now, like I said, that takes some of the jagged edge off. But something there still doesn't seem fair, does it? Remember, and this is why I read so much of that chapter from Francis Chan. I think he really draws well this idea of how we will judge God based on our ideas of morality and logic. And so we would see God saying that. And really, if God would have sought my counsel, which clearly he should have, I would have said, now, Lord, let me tell you something. I mean, I'm just going to tell you right now, you're going to get sued. Because Esau does not have equal access. Esau does not have equal opportunity to what you're doing. I mean, isn't that how, in our mind, I mean, that's a very good statement. That's a very good understanding. We say, God, you're just, you're just wrong there. You, you can't do that. Ah, is God limited by what I understand? And has God wronged Esau by doing that? By the way, you know what I said a moment ago? God elected the Jews, but Gentiles ended up getting in on the blessing, Right? 
God elected Jacob. Esau seems to be left out. But you know, when you read the whole story, boy, when Jacob and Esau coming out, boy, you talk about sibling rivalry. They are, they are at it right from the get-go. And, and I mean, it's a bad falling out. But when you get to the end of Jacob and Esau's story, they've not only reconciled, but Esau is greatly blessed of God and acknowledges that. So that didn't completely leave him out of something. But nonetheless, it would sure say, man, I'll tell you what, sure looks like Jacob's coming up with the better end of the deal. And that's not, it's not fair. Is God being unfair? Let's look and see how Paul answers this. Verse 14. What can we say? Was God being unfair? Of course not. For God said to Moses, I will show mercy to anyone I choose and I will show compassion to anyone I choose. So receiving God's promise is not up to us. We can't get it by choosing it or working hard for it. God will show mercy to anyone he chooses. For the scriptures say that God told Pharaoh, I, Pharaoh, I have appointed you for the very purpose of displaying my power in you. And so that my f fame might spread throughout the earth. So you see, God shows mercy to some just because he wants to. And he chooses to make some people refuse to listen. Well, then you might say, well, then why does God blame people for not listening? Haven't they simply done what he made them to do? No, don't say that. Who are you, a mere human being, to criticize God? Should the thing that was created say to the one who made it, why have you made me like this? When a potter makes jars out of a clay, doesn't he have the right to use the same lump of clay to make one jar for decoration and another to throw garbage into? Does he, does he have that right? You would say you have that right. Does God have that right? God has every right to exercise his judgment and his power, but he also has the right to be very patient with those who are the objects of his judgment and are fit only for destruction. He also has the right to pour out the riches of his glory upon those he prepared to be objects of his mercy, even upon us whom he selected, both from the Jews and the Gentiles. Now this passage is very simply what it's saying is, when God judges sinners, he is showing the perfection of his holiness. When God gives forgiveness to sinners, he is showing the perfection, he is showing the perfection of his grace and of his love. You see, I said a moment ago, God, God's plan for the Jews is still intact because he sovereignly chose them. Well, God's plan is also managed by his perfect character. God's perfect. You and I are not perfect. We treat each other unfairly. We can be charged with injustice and unfairness. God can't. God doesn't. God won't. When he acts, it is always right and fair and just. And so when he picks one sinner to show his, his wrath and his judgment, that is the perfection of holiness and justice. And we do want God to be just. When he picks another sinner and forgives them, he is showing the perfection of his love and his grace. And the amazing thing about God, and he is amazing, he can do both at the same time. He can display both wrath and grace at the same time and do it perfectly. And yes, humanity is the backdrop by which God does this. Now, Paul picks out an illustration, something every Jewish reader and even us today would be very familiar with. He picks out the Pharaoh. And he says, you know what? God decided, you know what? Pharaoh is a sinner. I'm going to use his sin. I'm going to use his life to display my glory. Now, we all are sinners, but we also have different sins that we kind of specialize in, right? 
Well, Pharaoh's specialty was rebellion, arrogance, stubbornness. And so God came to him in in Moses and said, let my people go. A stubborn person says what? Yeah, it's not a trick question. Go ahead and say it like you mean it. What does a stubborn person say? No, I'm not going to do that. Glory, let me show you what I'm going to do. And God brings a judgment. Again, he gives an opportunity. Let my people go. No, there we go. And see, God uses his sin. Every time Pharaoh says no, God brings a different judgment. Now, a little bit more than our time and study today. But did you know that every one of those judgments is a judgment against a false god of Egypt? So every time he brings a judgment, he's teaching the Egyptians. He's revealing to the Egyptians as well as the Hebrews who the true God is. Frogs are not God. I am. The sun is not God. I am. The Nile is not God. I am. I have control over all of these things. God is revealing to the Hebrews, to the Egyptians, and to the world. He's making famous the one true God. Pharaoh finally relents, finally lets the people go. But what does stubbornness do? And he gathers up his armies. He goes chasing after the Israelites again. Backs them up against the Red Sea. They're now in an inescapable moment. They're in an impossible moment because of Pharaoh's stubbornness and rebellion. And what does that give an opportunity for? Probably one of the greatest miracles we see in the Bible. The parting of the Red Sea. That opportunity came because of the stubbornness and the arrogance of Pharaoh. Now, the question is asked, okay, fine, good. So God uses us to display his glory and power. But then why does God come back around and judge Pharaoh for it? Pharaoh was was just doing what God made him to do. No, God didn't make him to sin. The passage does not say that. James chapter 1, along with a host of other passages, make it very clear. God does not lead people to sin. God does not entice people to sin. God does not make people sin. So when God judges Pharaoh for being a sinner, he is absolutely right and just in doing that. You see, the, pre- the reason we have a problem with God's unfairness is because we're starting with the idea that we're all good and we're all owed. But wait a minute, especially for those that have been with me in Romans for a while now, is that what Romans 1 through 8 taught us? Specifically Romans 1 through 5, that we're really pretty good people and that God owes us heaven, owes us an opportunity to know Him, owes us a chance to be forgiven? No, we learn just the opposite. We have rebelled against God from the get-go and our morality hasn't cleaned us up. Our intelligence hasn't cleaned us up. Our religion hasn't cleaned us up. Every single one of us has sinned against God. We are immediately and instantly worthy of all of His judgment and all of His wrath. Instantly He could send us all to hell. But if before doing that along the way He chooses to display His glory through that sin, does that make Him wrong? No. If along the way he chooses to save some, does that make him wrong? No. Nowhere has he wronged. Now, you see in the passage, and and Francis Chan referred to it, the passage in here that a lot really struggle with is that phrase, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Some have interpreted that to basically say that God has created some people for no other purpose than to burn in hell. They cannot be saved. They will not be saved. They will be cast into hell. And literally, I've read this, they will burn for his glory. 
in hell they will burn for his glory. And they would refer to a passage, which, by the way, it does sound pretty close to that passage, doesn't it? They were prepared. They were fit for destruction. Now, there's nothing like a little grammar lesson to clean some things up. If you're an English teacher, and I'm sure there's got to be one in here, you're going to love this. That word prepared, and I actually think while Francis Chan really does a good job of helping us think about this, I, I think he misses this part. That word prepared, down there in verse 22 and 23, that word prepared in the Greek language is written in the middle voice. You're thinking, oh my gosh, what is he talking about? Yeah, it's written in the middle voice. A little grammar lesson. When a verb is written in the middle voice, the subject of the verb acts on itself. So the best way to interpret this passage is these vessels of wrath prepared by themselves for destruction. This is what they've done to themselves. Now let's go back to Pharaoh. Let's go back to the potter and the clay. Anybody in here ever made something with clay when you were in kindergarten? You got a lump of clay. You made it into something. I made an ashtray when I was in kindergarten. I didn't smoke at five. My parents didn't smoke, but it was the 70s. So I figured somebody was smoking somewhere. So I made an ashtray. I don't know what you made, but you remember we, we, we formed it and we made it. And then when the day was over, we gave it to our teacher and we came back the next day. And what was it? Hard as a rock because our teacher was magical. No, she wasn't magical. What'd she do with it during the night? She, she burned it. She, she put it in the oven. She hardened it. We, fit, we fitted the mold. We chose the mold. She took it and hardened it. Folks, Pharaoh chose his mold. Pharaoh chose his shape of rebellion against God, of arrogance against God. And God said, okay, that's the mold you choose. He took it. And then what does it say he did? He hardened it. That's what you want. That's what I will use. Does God have the right to do what he wants to do in that case? And has he wronged anybody? Yes, he has the right. And no, he has not wronged anybody. Now, let's kind of close this up here. Now, the question is, what about the Jews? Now, we're not answering that question in entirety today. But the question is partly answered. God's not done with the Jews. God sovereignly began something in a choice that he made for the nation of Israel. He is managing that choice by the perfection of his character. And he will come full circle with Israel and with the Jewish faith. You know, last week we talked about the tribulation and, and the millennium. You remember that? You know, I, di I didn't go into this last week. But folks, one of the primary, one of the primary purposes that the Bible tells us there is a tribulation is to bring punishment on a Messiah rejecting Israel. So God's still working in that plan. There's still things that he is doing there. So then we come through the tribulation. Out of that tribulation, many Jews will be saved. And then we move into the millennium. You know what the purpose of the millennium is? To fulfill a promise made to David. You will have a son who will ascend the throne in Jerusalem to reign eternally in a heaven-like state on this earth. The millennium is the fulfillment of God's promise, not to Gentiles, to Jews. So God's not done with them. You know, folks, this big theological question, none of us are thinking about Jews. Think how personal this is. God has promised us in Romans chapter 8 that he has a plan that he's working in each of our lives. You ever wondered if the plan was still in place? Ever wondered if the wheels came off? It sure doesn't seem like God's working. It sure doesn't seem like anything's happening in my life. They are asking that about the Jewish faith right now. Well, it doesn't seem like this is about the Jews. 
No, it began with a sovereign choice and it will be completed in that sovereign choice. And it's managed in the perfection of his sovereign character. Boy, folks, God fulfills his promises. God completes his work, whether it's a, an individual or the church or the nation of Israel. You know, what we're, what we're looking at today, and these are difficult topics what we're looking at today, what, what 9 and 11 bring us to is, is really a great debate in Christendom. There's a lot of battle over these passages and it kind of breaks out into what's called a, a Calvinism versus Arminianism. Calvinism, uh, that belief in the sovereign control of God. Arminianism, the free will of man. And, and as a matter of fact, this debate is very big in Southern Baptist life right now. We have some seminaries that are falling out in these two different camps and, and literally kind of waging some big debates with each other. And they're producing graduates who are going out and literally splitting churches over this issue. So it's, it's, it's a big issue that's being worked through here. And, and gosh, you know what, folks? I'm, I'm called to be a pastor. That's, that's what I'm called to be. I'm not a theologian. I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer. But, but I want to look at both camps and say, you're both wrong. Both have built an argument on a, on a group of passages and they're dead on in what they're building and understanding in the passages that they look at. Both sides. The problem is they reject and ignore the verses of the other side. Now I'll come back around to what we started with, with that, that reading from Francis Chan. You see, in our mind, we can't reconcile that both of these things can be true. You can't have a God that is controlling every moment, every day, every event, every person to fit into His plans. You can't have that, the sovereign control of God, and have us as free beings who we're choosing. You, you can't have both. That, that's a contradiction. Yes, it is a contradiction in our puny mind. Guess what? God's mind ain't puny. What is a contradiction for you and me, what we cannot reconcile in our intelligence is no problem at all for God. And the fact is God affirms both. God affirms that he is controlling every minute, every moment in your life to bring you to the place that is his plan for your life. And at the same time, there are passages that say and you are a free being. We read a passage right here that says, man, Pharaoh was used by God for destruction and to show his power. And yet we have the passage we looked at last week in 2 Peter 3 that where God says, I would that none be lost. I take no pleasure in not one person going to hell. Nobody is burning in hell to the glory of God. God says, I take no pleasure in that. So you have a God that's in control. You have us as free beings. The scripture affirms both. Contradiction for you and me. Not a contradiction for God. Folks, glory in. Rest in. Enjoy the bigness of your God. The majesty of your God. The complexity and the simplicity. The softness and the awe. The majesty and the glory. Enjoy that. Rest in that. He is big. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I worship you. I praise you because you are big. I am so grateful, though it can really confuse me and though it can make me uncomfortable and sometimes I can't answer questions and just like your servant Francis Chan said, I'm almost embarrassed by the answers. I'm grateful for a God I can't get my mind completely around. 
I praise you that you are in no way, shape, or form limited by my intelligence. You're not limited by what I can perceive. You're not limited by what I can logically add up. And I praise you for that, God, because I look around in my world, I need something a lot bigger than what I can figure out. And God, we worship you for it. I worship you today because you're big. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.